0: Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast.
1: This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching.
0: So you go first. What's astonishing you, friend?
1: Listen, it's been many, many years. Actually, it's happened to me one time in my entire life. I was in high school, and I experienced a runner's high. Like, I was in the middle of a track meet, I was running the, either the mile or the two mile, and the race was not quite over. I mean, it was kind of the last leg, the last part of the race, and I was like in maybe fifth place. Um, and suddenly, like, I felt this euphoria. I didn't feel my feet hitting the ground. My body felt peaceful. I heard nothing but the sound of my own heartbeat and my breath. Everything else was silent. Again, it was a euphoria. Um, and it was an incredible feeling. And I, at, in that moment, I didn't know what it was. Uh, later on, I learned about a runner's high And again, I've only experienced that once in my entire life.
0: That hurts my feelings because you and I have taken a lot of runs together. And never. And I'm (laughs) sad. You've never gotten high taking a (laughs) run with me. Fine. Carry on.
1: Well, I experienced um, on Sunday. I love that
0: you're going to say this.
1: (laughs) The equivalent of that in the preaching moment. Like, there was this euphoria. Um, I, like, there was... My my body felt different. Like, I watched the video. I'm like, wh- when did I start pointing? When did I start pounding on the lecture? I mean, clearly, it was the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I received some calls this week, uh, people asking what got into you, and, of course, the answer is the Holy Spirit. You as an extrovert, often talk about, you know, you you have something to say, and it just, it's burning on the inside of you if you don't say it, right? That's Correct. rare for me as an introvert. On Sunday, I had this word that was burning. I had to say it, or else I was going to just combust, like just, I was going to lose it. And then after the preaching moment, I prayed, we sang a song, I did the benediction, and... Uh, we have this traditional lectern that's really big, it's high up some stairs, and you can um, like squat down in it if you want, and no one can see you. I went back into that pulpit, and I just collapsed, and I, I just cried. I, I mean, I just, I could not help bursting into tears. Number one, because I was exhausted Number two, frankly, I was embarrassed because it felt like this emotional display and that I was out of control and so I was embarrassed. But also, um, like the, the feeling came back to my body and I was like, I hurt, I was tired and I I just felt spent, and so I just cried behind the pulpit for a while while people left the sanctuary, and I gathered myself and left, and um, I've been doing this for, what, 24, 25 years, and I left the pulpit asking God, what was that? I mean, what? And I know what it was. I know it was the Holy Spirit, but it was an unusual anointing to preach on Sunday. And it was both exciting and wonderful and beautiful and scary. Yeah. And, um,
0: well, I mean, I just think that we, so on this podcast, we often share what is real that's happening in our congregations, particularly, the things we want to celebrate, um, and lift up. Um, and, and we, I think to an appropriate degree, sometimes share what is hard, but also, I mean, I hope this is obvious. There's a lot that we don't share. Um, and I think that we partly, I mean, that's just common sense and good pastoral boundaries. Um, and partly it's because we really try to focus our energy and attention and vision on where we're going and what, you know, so what you pay attention to, you get more of. So, I I mean, to me, it makes sense that you would have that kind of a static experience at this moment, pastoring at Dorida, because I think that a huge shift is happening there. And there's a huge supernatural awakening and rebirth. You know, there's, there's something that is groaning in yeah, the birth pangs yeah. and trying to come to life there. And it is not something as, as hard as it is for pastors and elders and church leaders, as much work and effort and energy as it takes um, to be faithful in all seasons, but particularly in this season, at the end of the day, it's not all of that effort that actually does the thing. So I think it makes sense to me that you would have this kind of supernatural aesthetic aesthetic experience in the preaching moment, knowing what I know about the season that Dorida is in, in its transformation, and just the real joys and pains that go along with birth, right? Mm-hmm. And th- I think that's happening now. And um, you know, a lot of that story is not appropriate to share in a quasi-public setting like this one. But I mean certainly one of the gifts of our friendship is we do a lot of um talking personally about like, hey, this is happening and here's the situation and this is how I'm feeling and this is what I'm planning and can you check me on this or do you see something mm-hmm. differently? And that's I mean that's very much mutual. And I think you need I mean, I think that all pastors need someone who shares their values and vision, who they can be really vulnerable and frank with, and it's confidential and you can, because sometimes it's, it's just, um, you need to show up as the leader, which means you need to come to the table, knowing what you think. Now you need to come to the table, knowing what you think with a willingness to be persuaded and changed and edified and even rebuked by your leaders around the table, but a good leader doesn't show up at the table and say, okay, let me, let me formulate a plan in real time among my people. And that's not because as leaders we are wiser or higher or better or superior in any way. It's just because this is the role we're playing. Um, so I think, you know, pastors need that. And so we are that for one another. So knowing what I know about, the life of the church. It makes sense to me as just a sign and a wonder to encourage you and people in the congregation to say like, hey, there's some really hard decisions um, and choices that we need to make based on trusting God to be God Um, and trusting God that when we do risky things and walking out God's values, which sometimes aren't even authentically ours yet, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but when we make risky sacrificial choices to walk out God's values, this is a sign that the spirit is with us and making us more than we are on our own. This is a manifestation of grace. And I think that you need that and your people need that. And that is, you know, God's goodness and kindness. So I think it makes sense.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. It was an amazing Sunday now. And I say that
0: and now you got to preach the Sunday.
1: Well, and knowing that you know someone Onward. may go check it out on YouTube and watch it and go, "Uh, wasn't that great in the moment in yeah. that room. There well, was a charge yeah. in the air."
0: Well, and that's I think such a helpful thing to say because um actually I was just talking to my friend Charday, who's a member of the Grove and is starting seminary in the fall and is preaching her first sermon, um official sermon this Sunday at the Grove. And so we're just talking this week because she is beyond ready and does not need anything from me. And I know when you do it from the first time, it's just good to have support and to know that like, okay, I know that I'm um, not crazy because <laughs> it is crazy to step into a pulpit and preach just period end of story. Anyway, so I was talking to her about that and we were just talking about how, and you and I really like this Andy Stanley talk called how to give a talk where he talks about sometimes in the preaching moment, especially pastors go into a sermon and what we're looking for are those like, Ooh, ah moments. Like, Ooh, I never thought of it that way before. Ooh, that was so pretty. You're looking sort of to be entertained or astonished or whatever. And like, that is not the point. Um, it's just not the point. So that's not bad. But it's not the point. The point is transformation, and the point is a spiritual experience, a, a manifestation in people's hearts and minds, and um, you know, spiritual nourishment. And um, yeah, so one of the
1: ways we put that on Sunday, um, and we do this from time to time at Dorado Church, is that we say, "Okay, you're going to listen." To the word, a, a logos word. I'm going to read the text. I'm going to preach and teach the teach the text, but you're also listening for the Holy Spirit quickening some part of that Correct. word to say, "This is for you. I want you to do something with this."
0: Correct. And and so to have that to have that experience by the grace of God of hearing directly from the Lord or being changed or grown or transformed or healed or whatever that looks like that doesn't require like an ooh, ah, rhetorical, excellent thing. And in fact, like the excellence or the cleverness or the entertainment value of the sermon
1: can get in the way, can
0: actually be counterproductive to that, mm-hmm. that you can leave thinking like, Ooh, so-and-so was a great preacher. Instead of focused on your walk with the Lord and how God is, you know, God doesn't care about the sermon. God cares about God's people mm-hmm. and the sermon only exists as a means to an end. And the end is the maturity and growth and fruitfulness of the people. And so like, if people were to go watch that message on YouTube and be like, well, I don't get it. I've heard better sermons. I mean, maybe, but that's not the point. The point is what happened in that room. And I I mean, and I do think that people can go, if they're looking for it, can go to that YouTube and say, hey, is there is, is there something glorious in this for me, Lord? And I think that where we look for it, we find it. Mm. But if you show up to be critical or to be entertained or to evaluate the excellence of Yolanda's preaching, I mean, you'll find what you're looking for. That's right. So what happened in that on that day, which I think is available in a virtual way, but what happened in that day was the spiritual edification of the people in that room. And if that doesn't impress you, I mean, that's fine. But that's the point. Right. Um, right. And, and so, it, it whatever. That's just a huge celebration. And have I ever win. told
1: you about my introverted preacher prayer that I pray Sundays going to church? We've no. Never done. Well, um, almost every Sunday when I'm driving in, I pray something like... Um, God, I'm not really sure I want to do this today. I'm really nervous. I don't want all those people looking at me. I don't think I really want to get up in front of people. But um, you said I've been called to do this work, and you said that you would provide an anointing, so I'm going to do it, trusting that you're in it. It's like every Sunday I have to do that kind of prayer just to affirm, okay, God, if you're not in this, it's just... It's, it's going to be nothing. It's just going to fall flat. It's just going to be. Yeah, me.
0: that's interesting because. Um, so I have a version of that prayer that I pray every Sunday because there's never a Sunday where I don't want to preach. But there's also rarely Sundays that I do want to preach in the sense that mm. I always feel unprepared. And I always feel like, oh, gosh, if I had just worked a little harder and I often feel overwhelmed and like distracted. And um, and so what I pray almost all the time is like, oh, I do not have it. I know it. You know it. I do not have it yeah, it's a and I thing. feel and yes. I feel terrible about that like I feel a tremendous amount of like guilt and shame like if I'd made better choices a been more responsible I would have it you've given me everything I need to get it like I have the great privilege like my community has provided me with the resources of you know going to the well that you know like there I got no excuse no like I should have it I don't have it and then I but what I say is like look lord I I want people to be fed in this moment. That's the point of this moment is not for me to feel cool or look cool. The point of this moment is for people to be fed and people are coming to your house today, seeking your presence and seeking a word that will sustain them and grow them and encourage them and heal them. And, and so God give them that word. And if I get a choice, God, I would like to look good while they get that word. Like, that's, that's what great. I would prefer.
1: That's great. But you do it if, the way you want to do. But it.
0: But <laughs> I know that they can get that word even if I look like a damn fool. <laughs> and so if this Sunday is the day it all catches up for me with me and I need to look like a damn fool, I accept that, but please feed your people anyway. Like and I mean that's I really great. like I no, that's I mean good. that is that's so good. I mean every like there are Sundays more than I would like where I just sort of feel like like sick to my stomach it, just with the again like I don't want to not preach like let me be clear <laughs> like, I never want to not preach I have such a problem I never want to not preach but I also just I almost never walk into the sanctuary being like I've done what I need to do and I am confident I'm and ready. ready to go like never ever I mean, not never, but ve- like it's, rare. it's very yeah. rare. So yeah. I am praying that prayer, too, of One like, of oh, it, it cannot things... be up to me. It cannot be up to it me. It can't,
1: yeah. One of the most helpful things that um, happened to me early on in this preaching life was uh, when I had to preach before uh, the Presbytery of Middle Tennessee uh, many, many years ago. Uh, my pastor, Jim Lowry, was there uh, in the congregation, and afterward, he wrote me a note and um, it said, you got the gift. And that oh, was really such nice. a blessing. Mm-hmm. Because I just esteemed him to be, you know, one of the greatest preachers ever. And just to have that note. matter of fact, I stuck it in a Bible and just really carried it with me. It's like, you got the
0: gift. And the memory that God makes donkeys talk. That's, right. that's... <laughs> that's <laughs> Well, really. the thing that uh, uh, sticks with me all the time is my, my preaching professor, Anthony Campbell, who I just love so much and is, is in, you know, it's gone on to glory now, but just really everything, really everything I know about preaching, I know from studying with him and I'm so grateful. And he was such an amazing, an amazing gifted anointed preacher. Um, but he, and this terrifies me. He said lots of things that stuck with me. He's the one who said to us that if we paid attention over the course of our ministry, we would meet every single person in scripture in our congregations, wow. which I think about all the time. And it sounds like, a, it's, it sounds like the dumbest thing ever. And I, and I find it to be so helpful because I experienced it to be true. And I think it's really helpful as a preacher to sort of say like, these people whose stories are captured in amber in the Bible, and it's true that God was using them and present with them and all those, ways, but not just them us too. And so it makes sense that the kinds of adventures and encounters that people are having with God in the Bible, if God is who God says that God is, and if, if God's promises are true, then of course the same sorts of things are going to be happening because same God, same people, right? So anyway, I think about that all the time. But the other thing he said that terrifies me is he said, like there will come a day when you will walk into a gathering of God's people. And people will look at you, and they will know that you are a preacher, and they will say, give us a word. And you need to give them a word, even if you didn't know it. He said, that will happen. And do not think that just because you haven't prepared, that means you get to say no. Like, you're the preacher. and When they ask you for a word, Mm. you need to give it. And the other thing he said is, if at some point during your career as a preacher, if at some point you do not stand up and say, today, I have no word from the Lord and sit down. So he said, at some point, if you don't do that, then you're a liar and a fraud. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Both of those things I intuitively wow. experienced to be true. Both of them, I fervently pray will never ever happen to me. Um, but I think he was trying so you've to never say done like, that. no, I've never done nope. that. But I mean, I can't say that there weren't. I can't say that there weren't days, probably that I should have. Right? I mean, there are just days that, like, preaching is a craft, and so there are just days where, you know, you and I, we can preach a sermon even if the Lord's not in it. Like, we can.
1: Even if you're not feeling it.
0: Well, and it's not even about feeling, but like, Mm -hmm. even if, like, you, like, you know that you can just, you, you can create the appearance of the thing. Like you can. yeah. And so, and I think, I think what he was trying to communicate to us is like, this is spiritual work or else it's idolatrous. And if you're not going to approach this from uh, the really vulnerable place of like, this is something that we do in partnership with God almighty, then it's just like rampant ego and, and that's dangerous. Right. And so I, you know, I really liked Anthony Campbell. Not a lot of my colleagues did, but I just thought he, I just think he's brilliant. I thought he was brilliant. And I'm, I'm so grateful for, um, I'm so grateful to have studied with him. Anyway,
1: that's just so far off field.
0: So Well, this week, this past week, I um, was on my computer looking at social media as I do more often than I'd like to admit on Facebook, which I feel really guilty about. Cause you almost never do that, but you do what I do. You just do it on YouTube and I do it on Facebook. So it's really the same thing. Actually, yes. <laughs> um, but I, I ran across an article and it, and it was a pastor writing about um, the climate crisis and uh, you know, just to anchor this in time and we don't talk about this a lot on this podcast And it's not because it's not a crisis or relevant. It's it's just because there are so many different crises. Um, But this week, it's terrifying what is happening in the climate that, you know, there's an island in Greece that the whole island is on fire and everyone had to be evacuated. And I was reading stories about people who have had to leave their homes um, on the West Coast because there was so much smoke they couldn't breathe. And then they went to... Uh, Washington state and had to evacuate from there. I mean, like they're just are uncontrollable wildfires going on. There is drought. We're about to tee up for another hurricane season. Um, but the, but the fires are just, and, and then the UN just released a report saying like, okay, there's absolutely no way that we can avoid climate change, like to hit the target, to not trip the wire that starts the cascade, like that's done. So um, it's now only a matter of how bad it's going to be. And we can still take drastic action to make it less catastrophic. Although as we live through this pandemic, our ability to collectively take drastic sacrificial, I mean, like, (laughs) I don't, I was never under that illusion (laughs) that that would be something we could do. So, I mean, it's just a a terrifying thing. And I was reading an article that a pastor had written about that and it started with a meme they had created that said, yeah, I didn't sign up to be pastor during the apocalypse. And then was sort of talking about all of these very biblical signs of, you know, the sun not being visible because of, um, smoke and and just all of this stuff and sort of bemoaning it. And then at the end of the article, someone, um, like commented with a, with that same meme, but they had doctored it. And it said, um, you absolutely signed up to be pastor during apocalypse. And I thought like, that is, that's such a helpful reframe for me. Um, and that does not, please don't hear me as saying like, this is inevitable and I don't care. I do care. It's not inevitable. Um, but I do think that there's a part of me that kind of woe is me, and says, you know, like, I hate that. I hate this for my children. I I hate this for myself. I I feel terror about what is happening, and what is likely to happen. Um, And it is not unfaithful to live in reality. And also, when else do people need disciples of Jesus Christ and pastors except in times of tribulation. And so I think for us to see not like well all bets are off because the world is going to hell in a handbasket like no no no. This is for such a time as this. Do we exist in the world not to ignore it and not to deny it and not to say like it's too awful to contemplate. And so I was having a conversation with somebody the other day who was like, "Oh, humans are humans are adaptable, so it'll be fine." I'm like you know, that might be a reasonable thing for a secular person to sort of say, Oh, well, it doesn't matter what's happening. It'll all be okay. The The message of the Bible is not whatever happens. It'll all be okay. The message of the Bible is like, things are not okay. And reading revelation, which is not a predictive timeline, but is rather a reflection of the reality that John and his congregations are living in that like terrible things are happening right now. And that should not trick us into believing that the Lord is not present and active and working and that the battle has not already ultimately been won, but that we need to know how to walk and how to see and, and how to perceive where real power is so that we don't just succumb and try to save our lives by bowing down to the powers that are passing away. And uh, uh, again, we don't talk about climate change a lot, um, but I was struck I think probably a couple of years ago doing some, um, work in Deuteronomy for another purpose. I think I was writing about how, um, the, the Torah law codes were really centered around the widow and the orphan and the stranger and sort of this pursuit of justice is baked into the heart of God's designed for God's people. But the other thing that I was really struck with in Deuteronomy was this refrain that recurs over and over again, when God is laying out the law before the people. And when it's saying like, you need to live in this way. And if not your sin will defile the land, your sin will defile the land. And that echo keeps going again and again and again. And it's one of those things that it's just kind of easy to read over. Cause you're just focused on like the rule, whatever, but that idea that our sin, our moral choices will defile, not us, which is I think what we assume, but that our sin will defile the land, will defile creation itself. And I think as I was taught to read that even, I was taught to read that as sort of a metaphor. And I think we're living in a time where like, it is literal truth, right? That it is the sin of greed and oppression and violence. That is defiling the land. Our sin is corrupting the created earth. And that should not surprise us no, because, because it is that's revealed to us from the beginning. I was
1: going to say that's a narrative. That's a thread that runs throughout scripture, right? right. Adam and Eve sin; They're kicked out of the garden. Israel sins; they are driven into exile in Babylon.
0: Cain sins against Abel, and his blood cries out from where? From the the altar? From the land? land. Mm -hmm. And so I think, like we are, we sort of inherent this like Western Enlightenment understanding. Like I think from Plato of like the the spiritual versus the natural, and we think of sin as like this is a metaphysical like emotional, like it just has to do with people. And the natural world kind of goes on like clockwork. We think of that. There's just this huge separation when the when the witness of scripture is no, it's one world, (laughs) everything is spiritual. And so when we sin, that is the ramifications of that are expressed, not just in our social emotional interactions, but also in what we label the natural world. And that's not new news for anyone who takes the Bible seriously. So that's what... Yeah, and
1: if I remember, you know, exile theology correctly, um, the Old Testament prophets, it wasn't simply that there was, you know, a sin. Correct. And it wasn't one sin at one time. Right. It was collective sin over a long period of time, and then consequences Mm -hmm. exile and i can see a parallel with climate change well
0: and i think like the idea of collective punishment really offends us (laughs) unless we're thinking about children and then we're all about it (laughs) but um the idea of collective punishment really offends us but i think that what we have to see is some of us think like, well, I don't really have any power. Therefore I'm not really responsible for the world as it is. And my choices are morally neutral because I didn't create the system. I'm just trying to survive in it. But the reality is when we make a choice to co-sign on what we know is evil or to sort of, um, do what we can to benefit from it and excuse it by saying, like, well, if I were in charge, I'd do it differently. But since I'm not in charge, I'm going to go ahead and whatever, make all these choices that the culture says are morally neutral, but we know are not. We're like, everybody else is doing it, so I get to do it too. I mean, it is not only people who are in explicit power who are responsible for the whole, you know, for the reality of the whole community like again i i think we so much want we're we're so captivated by the western enlightenment ideal of individualism that it so seeps over into saying like well just me and jesus are fine i was talking to someone the other day he was like you know me and jesus are fine and just the whole church thing like i'm just not feeling it which i i mean i get it and i have compassion and i understand it but like i didn't i didn't design the system right like the scripture, I think, is just clear that it's not that we don't have individual relationships with God. We do. And we are called to be part of a community. And so it's not only just this positive of like, we need the community, but also whether we feel like it's, we are responsible or not. Like we are part of a community with all the good and all the bad that comes from that. Like we cannot help but reap what the community is sowing. And that's just Again, like, thank goodness for everyone that I am not God. But that just, as I read scripture, that's the way it is designed. And we can think that's not fair. That's fine. But it still is. But I just, the thing that was astonishing me was just this idea of like, you know, that I think like, oh, I didn't sign up to be pastor during the apocalypse. And then this revelation of like, oh, yes, we did. Yes, we did. And that is not just a pastor thing, but we could say like, you know, I didn't sign up to be a disciple during the apocalypse. Yes, you did. Mm. And so the, that, the fact that things are so overwhelmingly, uh, you know, that, that the illusion of goodness and order and control and fairness have been stripped away right now. And we think like, well, all bets are off and I just get to build my bunker. No, like this is the world that God so loves. We don't get to forsake it.
1: Yeah, and and it seems that there are two streams of false thinking among Christians today. One stream is the um, kind of Tim LaHaye left behind, beam me up Scotty. I don't have to worry about any of this because any moment this now... This world is not my home. I'm out of here, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't have to care. Right. The other stream is to align with the empire and the powers that be Mm -hmm. and say, okay, by force of will, um, by any means necessary, uh, I know Jesus said, love your neighbor, but we can do that later after we establish my kind of order.
0: Or to say the powers that be are in power because God put them in power. So obeying them is the same thing as obeying God, Mm -hmm. which as soon as you state it that plainly, anyone can tell, well, that's not biblical, but... That's what people do all the Mm -hmm. time. Like you just have to submit to authority because, you know, friends, come on. Like it's, it is terrifyingly not that easy. Uh, So anyway, I, that's what I'm astonishing. And now we get to move into what we're thinking about. And we're we're thinking thinking about about. all kinds of stuff. And
1: all related to the vaccine and and COVID COVID, and yes, well, for me, you know, I've been really avoiding the reality of our son going back to school. Because last year was so hard, so challenging. And um, now I'm confronted with this reality that he's going back into a public school and we're in a school district in which, you know, parents have yelled and screamed and cried and now the school board has said, okay, masks are optional even as COVID cases rise, even as children are getting sick, especially uh, black and brown children, and we are prizing individual freedom over individual, love of neighbor. let me
0: just say, not just freedom, individual preferences.
1: Individual preferences over life, love of neighbor,
0: over the lives mm. of children. And I, just want to say, and you, I think you and I are on the same page because we have children that our kids do not love wearing masks, but they don't care either. Like if they get to choose wear a mask, don't wear a mask, they'll choose not to wear one. But if you tell them to put their mask on and then they go wherever they're going. And every time, like I'll put Carrie into her car seat and I'll be like, baby, you can take your mask off. Because, like, I walk out of the grocery store and the first thing I do is take my mask off. Yes. My kids don't do that. Like, they will go to a movie and they just don't. They walk out of the movie theater, walk all the way to the car, get in. You have to remind them, like, hey, take your masks off. Like, they, and we went to the library yesterday. We were in for like 45 minutes. We came out and I'm like, oh, Carrie, you can take your mask off. She's like, it's fine. I mean, so I just think like so many people, the narrative is unmask our kids and this is child abuse and our kids are miserable and our kids can't. And I'm like, friend, I'm sorry. And uh, you know, I, it's not a double blind study, but like, I know children and the children are not the ones with a problem. Like when I, at vacation Bible school, the kids don't care about wearing masks. Now, you have to remind them sometimes, but when you remind them, they don't pitch a fit. They just not go, oh, deal. okay. And they put it up and like, they yeah. do not care. So I need people to at least be honest about saying, and I think there was one woman, I was watching your school board meeting because I mean, it's gone viral because your school board is. I mean, it is an intense manifestation of the trends in other places. This one woman was like, I am tired of putting a mask over my child's pretty little face. I want her pretty little face to be unmasked. And I want everyone to be able to see her pretty little face. And that's what it is. People want their children to be seen. It is not like, and they want to see their kids. They don't like the look of their children in masks. But it is not the kids saying, I'm so miserable, I'm so whatever, because kids are adaptable. And anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Well, it goes back to
1: what we were saying about climate change. We're just prizing the individual over, you know, the community. We, we, we are in this together.
0: Whether we like it or not. Whether we
1: like it or not.
0: And... So Matthew is going back to second grade, second grade in mm-hmm. a school where he can be masked, but his teachers and fellow students may or may not be masked. Correct. And obviously Matthew is too young to get the vaccine. So Correct. Matthew cannot, and people with the vaccine are protected. They might get it, but they are not going to get seriously ill and they are not going to up go the hospital with this um, variation. And so... Sorry. Sorry, friends. I just did not turn my sound off and I'm not. Yeah. OK, uh, so so that's a terrifying thing as a parent. And where we are, there is a mask mandate and I'm very grateful for that. And I still worry about, you know, in every individual school, it'll be up to the local leaders of that school as to how seriously they enforce or encourage. And there's a
1: charter school in our community a mm-hmm. a very um um well-known highly prized in the community charter school and they started without any kind of mask mandate and just saw a quick surge in it was cases. like 50
0: cases in three yes. days
1: and they had to close they, down they, yeah they had to do something yeah um and i don't know why and, and there's a there's a case um, north of the city of Charlotte uh, in uh, the town of Mooresville. Another uh, charter or private yeah. school had the same situation. And I don't know why we are experimenting on our kids, just waiting for it to get bad before we actually do something. Well, I do think something. two
0: things. I mean, A, America is a country that prizes individualism and does not prize the collective. And we associate the collective with socialism and communism, which we think is like horrific and oppressive and anti-American. So, and B people think, well, there's a good chance nothing bad will happen to me. Therefore I don't, I don't I don't care. And that's again, like as a national philosophy, as a secular philosophy, you know, that's fine. I mean, people can can be Randian individuals, believe in the philosophy of Ayn Rand that the good of the individual is the highest good. That the problem is you cannot square that philosophy with the ethic of Jesus Christ. You cannot circle that square. Right. Um so so that is the challenge when people both want to hold on to that philosophy and claim to be, um, baptized disciples of Jesus Christ, like the only way you can say that is if ironically you do not take scripture seriously. Um, and if you do the thing that you probably accuse others of doing, which is have a canon within the canon. And also to say that it is, um, that not just that scripture is inerrant, and holy, but that my understanding and the traditional understanding of Scripture is inerrant and holy. And that um, is the big, uh, that's the big challenge. So we're thinking.
1: Well, as we were setting up for uh, this podcast, recording this podcast today, you received a very interesting uh, voicemail. Uh, I would love to talk about it. You want to play it?
0: I will play it, but I'll set it up a little bit first because it's all, I know, AV, we've never had AV. Well, we did. The one time, the Try Jesus, Not Me, we had that one. Um, So this past week, um, I wrote a piece about vaccination rates, and that's what prompted this. It is
1: a response to that. I forgot. Um,
0: And and the point of my piece, and we were talking about this before we started recording, too, is just, um, again, our challenge in this moment is really with the collective. So like we've had the culture war for a long time and people have just kind of lined up on the side that they've lined up for and and they've sort of maybe hated the people on the other side and viewed them with contempt, but but basically could just sort of say like, well, I don't have to deal with those people. I just need to beat them in the election, but that but that's it. Um and now we're in this moment where whichever side of the culture war you're on, you are stymied because your individual autonomy is being limited by the collective. So if you are someone who identifies as more, or who would be labeled as more conservative, and you are somebody who does not want to wear masks and does not want to take a vaccine, then you're deeply frustrated right now because there are institutions and authority figures who are limiting your personal autonomy, making you put on a mask, and maybe even making you get a vaccine that you don't want. And you're saying like, how dare my individual autonomy be limited by these, from these sources. And if you are a person who would be labeled progressive, you are a person who believes in masks and who believes in vaccines, you are finding your life disrupted by these COVID outbreaks that are happening because everyone else isn't doing what you're doing. And so you're saying, like, it's so frustrating. Why won't everyone wear a mask and why won't everybody get a vaccine? And I'm really you know so whatever side of the culture war you're on part of our huge frustration right now is it's not just how dare those people over there be so stupid and dangerous it's now my life my personal choices right. my ability to control my day and make you know is being limited by choices that other people are making that i don't have control over and that's just something that like we're all really struggling with because regardless of which side of the culture war we line up on we're all americans who feel like i should get to determine my own destiny and right now we just don't right like we are <laughs> i mean like king's quote about like this inescapable destiny of mutuality web mutuality, yeah, web web mutuality dest- yeah, mm-hmm. is like we are that is not theoretical that is just in our faces right now and um and i had written this article um trying to say to people who are frustrated with those who won't get vaccinated um people who are saying like oh these people are so selfish just to say like Yeah, I I just don't think it's that simple in all cases. I think there are a lot of people um, within the working poor who for a long time have been left out of the healthcare system in this country. And so who are trying to manage and deal with chronic life-threatening conditions without health insurance, without regular access to care, without um, consistent access to their medications, like are trying to raise kids, in places with like poor air quality and they have asthma and they're constantly in and out of the emergency room and you know what they keep hearing from the culture is healthcare is about individual responsibility and personal choice you need to take responsibility for yourself and if you had a better job you'd have healthcare and you don't and so this is your problem and if you want better healthcare then you know pick yourself up by your bootstraps and do better whatever and so now we have a lot of people who are in jobs that we have devalued and despised people like healthcare, low wage healthcare workers and um, low wage nursing home attendants and low wage um, teachers, assistants and teachers and early childhood educators who are choosing not to get a vaccine. And we want to scream at them and say, how can you be so selfish? Your choice is putting me and mine at risk. And I was just saying like, Hey, those people really could ask the same questions of us because for a long time, we've said like, we could cure your diabetes, but or we could help you manage your diabetes but mm, you can't afford the insulin and tough like too bad and you know we could give you regular access to a physician who could manage your child's asthma but you can't afford that so tough you're just gonna have to watch your child gasp for breath while they ride in an ambulance to the emergency room and then end up with huge medical bills that push you further down the hole of inescapable debt slavery and like this is just the way it is and suck it up and it's not my problem right like that's what we've said at large like your life sucks that's not my problem. That's your problem. And so now we're all outraged at, like, why aren't people thinking about others? I'm like, yeah, because we live in a country where we tell people.
1: We set it up that way. We,
0: right. Like, we do not prize neighbor love in this country in spite of the number of churches that exist here. That's not what we do. So we're, like, the the frame of the piece was to say, I heard someone say, um, we become what we tolerate. And we just, for generations, have tolerated people dying or having their lives destroyed from preventable medical conditions. We have tolerated it. And now all of a sudden, that that is happening to people who normally don't bear that burden. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is an outrage. How could we ever? I mean, this is who we are. And now we are just reaping what we've sown. Anyway, so that was the piece. And, um, you get a lot of responses. People do read the newspapers shockingly. Um, and so I get a lot of responses whenever I write something in the paper from outside of my community, because you know, like people at the Grove listen to me and nobody else does, which is fine. And actually I prefer it that way. But when you write in the paper, like just a lot of people read that and then you get responses. And so I get a lot of responses and a lot of them are very affirming and positive and encouraging. And then there are just people who, um, do not like what I've said. Um, and also do not like the fact that I've said it. And so I, as we were setting up, I got a voicemail and I listened to it. Um, it was a church voicemail. This person does not have my personal cell phone number. And I just thought like, Oh, we should just share this because it's an intersection of everything that we've been talking about. And also, the Lord has just done a work in my life, so that I I, I cannot explain this. I I should feel different feelings. You are than a better I human being. No, than but I, am. I like it is not me. It is not like my choice. I cannot understand why my reaction to this is like it genuinely delights me. Well, yeah, you. It genuinely delights yeah. me to get responses like this. Like it get, I I don't understand. Like how can I be overjoyed? It makes zero sense. But like. I just it 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 makes me laugh. Like I don't know. Like it makes me it makes me euphoric. I don't get it. So it is a work of the spirit. But here, but here it is. Y'all can listen to it and then we'll talk about it.
1: This message is for uh, supposedly Pastor Kate. Um, if you're so about God, He created an immune system. So why are you dodging that? And why are you telling people to take a chemical? Number one and number two, you haven't done your research because the CDC said that it's never been isolated. So if you're smart enough, that means that it's not real. So what are you doing? Why are you telling people that? And you're definitely not standing by God by holding online services with something that's a 99.7 survival rate that's not even real, even if it was real. So knock it off. So can I just say I love it's not real, (laughs) but there's a 99% survival rate, but it's not real.
0: Well, I mean, in the spirit of we become what we tolerate, like what I've learned is to just sort of like, I have friends and usually not you, but like I have female friends that when I get things like this, I'll share it with them. And we just kind of like, we actually have a competition for like the, the most um, extraordinary things that you hear as a female uh, woman pastor. Um, but in the spirit of you get what we tolerate, I don't generally like, I'm not, I'm not answering this guy back, but I, but I do think that it's helpful sometimes not to ignore it so that people don't think that you're ignoring it because you don't have an answer. And I think it's helpful sometimes to lift that up so that people know, like, just because you're not saying that, that doesn't mean that. People aren't saying that. And so it's really like there are things, I think, especially in the mainline church that we think are settled that are not settled. And we can't just say like, well, this is what we do because this is what we do. Like we have to understand, you know, why the ways that we are recognizing the giftings of people is godly and not just an accommodation to culture. So <laughs> so two things um, or several things um, just on the this, the, I, I have to, for just a second, talk about the science of this. Um, because is, you have
1: a biology degree. I do
0: have an undergraduate degree in biology. And ironically, actually did an internship at the CDC when I was in college. So there's that. Which means nothing in the context of this discussion, but it's just ironic. But um, to set up this premise of you believe in the vaccine or you believe in your immune system. So here's the thing. <laughs> the vaccine works by priming and activating your immune system. So if one doesn't believe in immune system, then there is no point in taking a vaccine. That is not an either or statement. Um, the The second thing that I just think theologically is worth pointing out in the terms of like, it's not real, but if it is real, it only 99.7% of people will survive it. So it doesn't matter. Again, like I think what you have there uh, among many challenges is a theological challenge. Because when you say 99.7%, then it sounds like, well, if 99.7% of people die, survive, then not even one person dies. But 99.7% of, and I don't know where that stat comes from, but let's just assume that it's the United States of America. So the 99.7% survival rate still means that, by last count, 600,000 people died. And and you one could say, hey, I'm a utilitarian, like the suffering of 600,000 people dying is not, um, does not counterbalance the suffering of uh, close to, Uh, however, three, six, 10 billion, I don't, 10 million. I don't know how many Americans there are. Seven million Americans.
1: 350, 360 million.
0: Americans. Hmm. Whoops, sorry. But you could just sort of say like, hey, I'm weighing pain and suffering. And when I put that on the scale, the extreme pain and suffering of 600,000 people dying and their relatives, it does not counterbalance the suffering of 3.7 million people like being inconvenienced or being more than inconvenienced. So I'm picking like the less... The least amount of harm. And like, I think as a as a secular person, as a government strategy, you can say that. You can't say that as a Christian, though, because you're stuck with Jesus saying the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Right. right. So mm-hmm. this just doesn't this. You can think that if you want to, but you cannot con, you cannot claim that you're lining up with God when you espouse that kind of, again, Ayn Rand utilitarian hyper-individualist philosophy it does not square with the gospel of jesus christ um and so i you know and then you know the bottom line is and i am listening to a book right now um written by beth allison i think her last name is Barr, and she wrote a book called the making of biblical womanhood and where she's it's really good Mm -hmm. um and it's helpful again, not, it's not new news. Um, but if you've ever sort of thought like, I understand that I, I know and understand that women are called by God, but when I hear people quote scripture at me from the other side i don't know how to respond um and like this is a very helpful read to sort of walk all the way through it and one of the things she does that's really helpful is just to say hey look first of all complementarianism is patriarchy and that's not just her being pejorative like she quotes all kinds of people within the for lack of a better label conservative evangelical movement saying that complementarianism is a rebranding of the patriarchy Absolutely. so so that is what that is so if you believe in complementarianism then you believe in the patriarchy and she you know has brilliant arguments about like look the the devil won the day that he convinced christians that oppression was a tool of god and 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 she also just walks through one of her main points is often people say like, well, we need to preserve the patriarchy because otherwise you're just conforming to the world. And the patriarchy is distinctive and it illuminates the kingdom of God. And the problem with that is this so-called distinctive Christian patriarchy looks exactly like the record of human history. So if you look at you know, uh, the ancient world, if you look at the not so ancient world, if you look at the contemporary world, what the world has always been about the patriarchy. And she, so, so to say we as Christians believe in the patriarchy because it's distinctive from the dominant culture is just not true. And so to say at this point that the movement for um, mutuality and interdependence and equality is now, you know, to, to see to the point that the culture has that better than the church is a mark of shame, not a, m- a mark of affirming the reality of the kingdom of God. And, you know, the final thing that he says, and this gets to just sort of the intersection of all of this, because I, I know that we talk and and I, want this that we talk a lot more about white supremacy and racial discrimination and oppression and violence and injustice on this podcast but um she uses a lot and i'm not even very far in but a lot of the work of russell moore and just his own words to pull out and look at them And, and his major argument is like look it's not that patriarchy is bad it's that pagan patriarchy is bad. Mm-hmm. So he says like pagan patriarchy is when women have to submit to every man and when men use their power cruelly and oppressively, but but Christian patriarchy is good. And in Christian patriarchy, women only have to I- submit to their individual husbands. And in Christian patriarchy, Um, Men know how to use their power well, and in Christian patriarchy, everybody benefits. So Christian patriarchy isn't just good for men at the expense of women, but Christian patriarchy is good for men, women, and children. And so what I think is interesting as I'm reading that is just how clearly that echoes the arguments of people who are trying to lift up the economic system of chattel slavery and say like, oh, no, 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 it's not that there was a problem with this system, there was a problem with the way the system was exploited. But the reality is there is a natural hierarchy of the races, and so good Christian slaveholders actually created a system where everybody benefited and everybody was in their right created order And everybody was protected and cared for and given reasonable expectations and everybody flourished. And so I think, you know, if you can recognize that that's a ridiculous thing to say in a racial construct, but somehow that feels kind of reasonable to you in a gender construct, then I think you need to be troubled by that. I mean, I think you need to notice.
1: And I think for a lot of Christians... They're not given a different construct from the church. I mean, you and I had the benefit. Well, let me speak for myself. Um, the benefit of going to seminary, the benefit of having um, teachers who laid those things out for me. I don't know if I would have picked that up no, I wouldn't anywhere have. else. I wouldn't like, have. And If it hadn't have been for... Um, a Johanna boss in my life, right? right? For
0: sure. No, and I I mean, I remember, again, like I came into my Christian life with a strong understanding from my parents about racial justice. Um, But when I walked into the church loving and being loved by Jesus and experiencing the love of God and experiencing transformation and experiencing healthy belonging in a way that I hadn't experienced anywhere else. And when they said to me like, okay, so the right way to live is to understand your gender in this way and to understand your sexuality in that way, even though there were parts of me that wished it were otherwise, I was like, okay, fine. If the choice is conceding to this structure and experiencing this kind of love or getting what I think is right but not experiencing this kind of love like okay I'll just submit to this because the people I trusted in authority told me hey this is the way it is and I was a person who very much understood that following Jesus was about picking up my cross and was about sacrifice and was about trusting God and not leaning on my own understanding. So when somebody says like, Hey, I know this doesn't make sense to you. And I know that this doesn't seem like justice on the face of it, but like, Hey, don't lean on your own understanding. Trust God. Like I, I was like, okay. Like I, I had no problem doing that because it just made sense. So if I hadn't had the gift of being called being called by God to become a pastor and having opportunity to be formed in institutions, which, you know, really left me lacking in some significant ways, but also really, you know, blessed and formed me deeply in in some other equally significant ways, you know, I would, I'd be right in the same place. Like, so I... I could see myself had the spirit led me down different paths or had I avoided the prompting of the spirit in other ways. Like, yes, I could absolutely be somebody arguing on the floor of the SBC against the ordination of women for sure. Like if somebody convinced me that loving Jesus meant making sure that I wasn't a pastor and nobody else was a pastor either for no problem. Right. If somebody said to me like, Hey, black people are created equal in the eyes of God, but, but they are not supposed to, express that equality in certain ways in the world. And they're not, you know, I, if somebody had said, if you love Jesus, this is what you have to think. I would have chosen loving Jesus. I wouldn't, I I would have felt like deeply buried, um, cognitive dissonance, Sure. but I would have ignored it. And I would have stuffed it down and I would have buried it because people would have told me that, I mean, not just my salvation, but that my, my, daily life with God would no longer be accessible to me like that. That's the really hard thing. And so that's why I think we have to have these conversations and not just assume that since these issues are settled for us, they're settled for everyone and to understand that people who see it differently, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not evil and they're not worthless and they're not garbage. And we need to be lovingly clearly saying This is what we know truth to be. And this is not based on not taking the Bible seriously. This is based on taking the Bible seriously. Um, So that's all I have to say about that.
1: Hey, that's good stuff. So what do you think we need to do to um, change minds? I mean, you and I have um, a pulpit that we get into every Sunday outside of that.
0: Well... What do we
1: need to be doing.
0: You know, I'm thinking about this a lot. And while I am convinced that there are moments when we are called to publicly speak and publicly protest and publicly um, participate in acts of civil disobedience and cheerfully and joyfully pay the price of those, I am convinced that those moments exist. Um, and I pray for the strength and the humility and the courage to embrace them when those moments are there. And I do not think that fighting the culture wars is the way that we build the kingdom of God. And so I do not think... That
1: is huge. It's huge. It's so huge. We just need to let that sit for a moment.
0: I do not think that fighting the culture wars is the way to participate in the kingdom of God. That's
1: huge. I mean, so many people... In our churches and I mean our as in the, the body church, of Christ body of universal Christ. yes,
0: it's a, it's like we, we need say to
1: hear that because we mm-hmm. have we have brought people into a mentality that says fighting the culture war equals following Jesus, following jesus
0: yeah and and what we the implication that's never articulated, but the implication is we got to get all these people on our side, and then we'll start loving our neighbors and forgiving our enemies and like, then we will turn the other cheek and then we will, you know, give without counting the cost. Like we will do all that once these people, once these people, and it's always the, it's not us, it's these people. Like we'll do the work. We will live in the kingdom once we get all these people on our side. And instead of realizing that we have the power to be the people of God in our sphere of influence right now. And I, I was listening to a, um, a podcast on the way home from Kentucky and the person was talking about, so, you know, like a demographic study, a, a poll, the P-R-R-I poll about like public religion. I don't, I don't even know. I don't know. A, a poll and they were tracking like who voted for who in the last election based on and racial breakdown, blah, blah, blah. And trying to understand like had evangelical support for Trump grown or shrunk between 2016 and 2020. And, and if it had grown, was that a function of people like no longer calling themselves evangelical? So then within the people who did call themselves evangelical, that, I mean, whatever, it's just a whole thing. But, but the one person, and this is from a more evangelical side of the pond. Um, but, but these people are, are people who very much recognize the danger of Christian nationalism. Um, and they were sort of looking at the the breakdown of those who identify as Christian within the Democratic Party. And they were sort of saying that they thought it was surprising that the Democratic Party didn't recognize how many of its members were Christians and weren't more attentive to um, like a, articulating Christian values. And as this person would say, like working for Christian policy decisions and like, and he he said, you know, when I don't understand when the democratic party will recognize that there's a sleeping giant within the democratic party and the Christians can like, and why aren't the Christians essentially like rising up and taking power, like taking over, right? Like we could really get something done. I just thought that's so interesting that still the unexamined assumption is the ways that, the kingdom of god will come is when christians overtake the secular government structures right like it's the same idea that the way the kingdom will come is through these human institutions and i'm not saying the human institutions don't matter i particularly think they matter when they are wreaking injustice and i particularly think it matters when we as christians need to say like hey this is not the way but to say like we need to take over human institutions so that the will of God, like sir what Bible are you reading? Like, that is not it. Like we have the power we need within our individual sphere of influences to live as Christ called us to live, whether we are victims of injustice or working for justice or just living in a neighborhood. Like there's nothing that stops me from going out and meeting my neighbors and entering into a relationship with them and I mean, there is something that stops me. It's me. I stop me. But, like, it's not the culture war. And reading that book, The Patient Ferment, that um, Greg Bentley recommended, it's so interesting because the – and I think I talked about this on another podcast, and I'm going to shut up in a minute, I promise. But I – um, he's talking about the time when the Christian church grew without um, using – An evangelism
1: program without – Well,
0: um, Well, before that, though, he's saying, like – The Christian church, we think of it as growing after Constantine became a Christian, right? Like after Christians got the tools of the empire, then the church really exploded because we did things like crusades and, you know institutions like chattel slavery where we'd be like well i'm kidnapping you and torturing you and killing you and what and like making you labor forever without without wages but i baptized you so i'm saving you and i'm growing the christian church right but explicitly people sought to justify that economic system by baptizing it in christian theology and i think that um you know, Ibram Kendi reveals that so well in his book, Stamped from the Beginning, that like, this has all been about economics. It's all only ever been about economics. It has been about how can we justify an economic system, which on the face of it is is blatantly violent and unjust. Like, how can we, what what can we wrap this up in so that we can benefit from it, but still believe ourselves to be good? And And we think like, well, you know, the, the the Roman Empire was violent and brutal, but once it became Christian, at least people got the gospel, right? At least, like, whatever happened in the temporal world, like, at least eternally they were saved. And one thing that's so helpful about that book is, like, hey, friends, before Constantine became an emperor, uh, became a Christian, like, before the emperor could, like, take your property and kill you if you didn't conform, to, like, the Christian church was growing. It was just yeah. growing through the fruits of the spirit instead of with the weapons of the enemy, right? And how was it growing? growing at a time when yeah no evangelism program like no public worship like how were people seeing Jesus and wanting to become a part of the Jesus movement you know how because people ordinary people without any power at all or people who had power and lost that power as a result like their lives were so transformed by the holy spirit and their lives became so beautiful that people said like i want that no matter what it costs me so how does the kingdom of god come sanctification of the saints right not like let's build a, a christian institution that is the church that provides health care and education and all of that certainly not like let's take over the united states government and then be the world's policeman in the city on the hill no sir like these are not the ways of the kingdom the ways of the kingdom is that kind of Supernatural overshadowing that we see in scripture that you experienced in the pulpit last week, where something happens that is ineffable but so powerful, and people cannot explain it, but people cannot control it, and people cannot resist it. And those are the tools of the kingdom of God, and we keep forsaking them because they're unpredictable and they're uncelebrated and they're. Unvisible and saying, like, well, no, give me an army and then I'll be good. But if people don't get on board, I'll threaten them for a good cause. This is not the way the kingdom comes.
1: Yeah, I sat in on one of our uh, Sunday school classes uh, this past week. Wonderful, great class, beautiful people. They're wonderful. Um, and they were uh, studying that place in Scripture where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the emphasis of their curriculum was on Jesus being the way to God, the way to heaven. And um, I also pointed out that Jesus is the way, yes, absolutely all day, every day. But Jesus has a way, the way of Suffering, the way of death, the way of giving one's life in love to others, the way that of that is unconditional way positive of regard,
0: and welcoming yes. a stranger and feeding the hungry, like this and that is that we
1: are called to walk in that. That way, way.
0: this Jesus is our way. Yes. So the things that Jesus did on earth, these are the things that we do, not because we think they will quote work, and certainly not because we'll do it when it benefits us. No, no, no. Jesus is our way. So. When there's somebody beaten up on the side of the road, you go over and help them. You don't need to understand if they deserved it or like. I mean, this whole ethic that we have in the church—that like we're going to help people who deserve it, and we don't want to help anybody bec- who doesn't deserve it because then we might encourage. Like, again, what gospels are you reading? Jesus blessed sinners. All that didn't. I mean, did not lie about that. But like, that. I just we do not. We don't understand our own tradition. Like the kingdom of God comes when we start living in it. And we can start living in it today, right. Junior. Today. It's just that we don't want to until those people get their act together. But I'm not putting down my sword until they put down their sword and they kill people for the wrong reason, but I kill people for the right reason. And so we don't want to lay down our guns. And This is why the kingdom's not coming because even the people who profess Jesus won't let him be their way. Like this is our problem. And I I'm, it's me like I'm the problem. Like I'm not saying this is like, I don't have it. Like I don't have it either. I, I don't, I'm just um, confessing.
1: Well, in this cultural moment, it is the work that we have to do in order to, um, not align with the empire, not align with the way of the enemy, but to align with the way of Jesus, to submit and to follow and to embrace and to love the way of Jesus, that is work. And we constantly have to fight against the um, temptation of the enemy to um, turn stone into bread, to...
0: Right, to to jump off a building and say, Jesus will protect me. I mean, to like we were saying last Sunday, like lost, hidden, small. This is where we find the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And if you despise those things, then you despise the kingdom. So to say, hey, this has a 99.7% survival rate, therefore we ignore it because some people are gonna die and like basically F them, we've got more important work to do. You can say that, but it is not Jesus because Jesus said, I leave the 99, I, I curtail their freedom. I take from them what they deserve to go find the one who is probably lost for no good reason. And in the same way that, like, that guy, I mean, <laughs> it is a stunning marriage of ignorance and arrogance. And I love that he's my brother. Right. Like, I'm not mad at him. He is my brother and he is lost. And the enemy has him very well inoculated against the truth. The enemy has him despising neighbor love.
1: You know, one of the things that comes to mind is that place in Scripture that we all love. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that God gave God's only son that whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. And sometimes I think we're we're just quick to go to the believe, believe, believe. And right. that is important. I'm not denying that. But um, I think believers today, Christians today, need to soak in that first part. God so loved the world, the right. the whole world.
0: Yeah, if you hate the world, you are not lined up with God. And if all you want to do is believe, like, yes, we d- we do not believe in works righteousness. And we don't earn our way into heaven. But if all you want to do is think and then live however you want to, You're not following Jesus. And that's a problem. Like, grace exists to equip us to grow and be sanctified and come alive in Christ and become the saints. Imperfect, but become the saints. And there's just a a huge difference between imperfectly walking behind Jesus and indifferently forsaking the ways of the kingdom because you're going to get yours now and get Jesus's in the kingdom to come. Like, this is ridiculous. For
1: me, one of the most... um both painful and freeing things about the Christian life is to follow Jesus thinking that I I got the truth I understand it I understand something whatever it is and then I keep listening to Jesus I keep reading scripture and then I see oh I have misunderstood this for a long time in the moment it is painful but then it is incredibly freeing and then just to embrace the reality that my whole life on this earth will be that it is a following after jesus and allowing jesus to correct my understanding
0: well and i just think at some point as disciples of jesus we have to decide do we want to be right because the devil will always affirm to us that we are right Mm -hmm. like you are right or do you want to be faithful and faithful involves discovering when you've sinned and actually sincerely grieving it and repenting it and wanting not to be justified, wanting to be forgiven. And anyway, so I, 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 it's, it's an extraordinary time to be a follower of Jesus and to be a pastor. And a lot of times it's just so easy to be offended because you're not getting what you quote, think you deserve. And then again, if you just return to the text then you think like all of my expectations came from the culture and not from the scripture and I want you know I want a certain kind of lifestyle and a certain amount of respect and a certain amount of security and a certain amount of safety and a certain amount of honor and all the fruits of the spirit that is not what scripture is promising us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I think a lot of us you know we and and I don't we want we we are worshipping a a false Jesus and we are enjoying blessings that do not come from Jesus. Um, and, And when we are presented with the real gospel, we say, I don't want that. Like, I do not want to have a peace that passes understanding. I do not want comfort in my sorrows. I do not want the strength to pick up my cross and follow. I do not want to love my enemies. I do not want to turn the other cheek. I don't want those things.
1: I want to win.
0: And that is not what that is not the way of Jesus. And so you got a problem not with me. You got a problem with the Bible. Mm. Anyway.
1: Well, in light of all of that and everything we've been talking about as one of your neighbors runs their lawn equipment. Uh, what are you preaching this Sunday?
0: Well, I'm not preaching this Sunday. You're I am going on vacation. Um, but the very wonderful and anointed Charday Henry, who is a friend and a member of the Grove um, and who is heading to Union Seminary this fall. And I'm so excited and honored and privileged to get to be part of her journey. Um, she is preaching her first official sermon this Sunday, on, um, a continuation of our series on the mind of Christ. And she is looking at, um, John 15 and, um, the, the analogy, the figure of, um, Jesus as the vine and us as the branches and God as the gardener and thinking about what, what does it mean as, you know, relevant to this talk, what does it mean when our goal shifts from being winning To being abiding. Like when what we're saying is not, oh do I have to abide in you? But like, God, that sounds great. I want to abide in you. That's my goal. That's my desire. What, What does that mean? So I'm super excited and grateful that I can virtually participate in the service, even though I'm far away. I am so grateful that even though I cannot physically be in the sanctuary, I can be a real part of the community on Sunday and be a part of that. That is a huge gift from God that I am celebrating God for. Um, So I'm really excited about that. What about you? What are you preaching?
1: I have no idea. (laughs) It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Um, (laughs) Yes. After this past Sunday, um, I I just don't know. Uh, Lately, um, I mean, I haven't been in a series for months. And have just been going week to week, um, just looking at the needs of the church, the things that we're going through, and have been, um, you know, with the help of the Spirit, speaking to those. And um, this week, I'm not sure what that. Um,
0: I, I have is. some ideas when we're off mic.
1: Oh, boy. Um. Well, last week, the, the, the sermon um, idea came in the midst of my small group. One of the elders of the church leads it. And, uh, uh, Margaret was giving, um, she was recalling a devotion that she'd read earlier that morning and she was reading it and she said the word courage and I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, that's the topic for Sunday. That's your, that's your message. And, um, boy, it was just crystal clear.
0: And I mean, not for nothing, but again, talking about like baptized expectations, like if (laughs) the narrow way of Jesus is the wide way of the devil that the culture keeps trying to convince us. Like why would we need courage to get everything we want exactly when we want it and be celebrated by the world and have nothing ever bad happen to us and never suffer. Like you don't need courage for that. Uh, You need the winning lotto ticket numbers. But anyway, so I I think that's just an interesting thing. Yeah, Yeah. You need courage to walk along the way of Jesus, which is worth it. But if what you're doing is, does not require courage, but is just a manifestation of self-interest, that's a good sign that it's not the way of Jesus. Anyway. Um, I, yeah, that I'm off, off, off mic. I'll give you ideas. <laughs> I sputter to a stop. Also, patriarchy is bad for men. That's my last thought. Patriarchy is bad for men. Yeah, Everybody keeps framing it as it's bad, it's bad for women. It's bad for children. Right. It's bad for cultures. Yes. It's bad for men, mm-hmm. too. Super bad for men um, to basically convince them that they need to function as proto-gods. And anyway, we we'll have to talk more about that later because... I I have, I have, let's come back to that because
1: that's important. Okay.
0: All right. Well, thanks for listening to us. We, this has been a long one. We got real wound up. We're sorry.
1: But we won't record next week. Right. We won't. So maybe we'll
0: split it in half. This can be a a two parter. Maybe not. No, I'm sorry. I won't ask you to do that. Hey, listen to (laughs) Yolando preach next week because it's going to be great to see what happens after last week. No pressure (laughs) at all. That is actually the first thing I thought of when you were describing that is like, that is such an amazing, wonderful, amazing thing. And then like, I bet it's all of ten seconds later before you're like, oh, shoot, what about next week? What, what, about, what about next, next Sunday? Week? Yes. Like, anyway.
1: As if God I cannot give manna Correct. Two weeks in a row. Right. I, I feel like there's... Anyway. Yes. Um,
0: but listen to Eulando preach. Uh, you can join Derida Prez, D-E-R-I-T-A, prez.org, um, that's their website and you can find their Facebook page right now and listen to the live stream happen. Um, you can go to their YouTube channel and you can also listen to um, the back catalog of Yolanda's messages on their pod bean uh, podcast uh, look for the Dorada Church podcast and if you want to find out more about what is happening at the Grove you can go to our website which is thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, you can join us for worship in person in the sanctuary at 10 or on our Facebook live stream at 10 and listen to Charday's sermon which I'm super excited about yeah. um, you can watch it also it'll be on our YouTube channel and uh, you can listen to old messages from the Grove. You can binge them if you'd like. Uh, that's on our iTunes podcast, the Grove Church podcast, or wherever or anywhere. you anywhere you get your podcast. Literally anywhere you get them. Uh, thank you all for listening to us, and we will talk to you in two weeks.